to Core GP Content, GP Core Content. This episode's on anxiety disorders. So I'm going to start with um, undifferentiated anxiety and work through to the diseases. Um, so basic history and anxiety, just want to explore you know, the details of the symptoms of the presenting complaint. So how long have you been anxious for? What do you think is causing the anxiety? Any recent adverse events in your life? How are things at work, home, family? Money, health, medications, medical history, and then any associated features with the anxiety. Have you lost any weight? Is there a lump on the front of your neck? Lymph nodes you've noticed up? Uh, a cough? Change in your medications or started any over-the-counter medications? Um, any change in your coffee intake? Alcohol? Cigarettes and exploring SNAP. And just generally asking around it if there's any PTSD symptoms, depression or mania symptoms. Uh, and the red flags and anxiety around surrounding um, harm to risk of harm to self. Any suicidal thoughts or thoughts of harm to others. Um, so basically you want to make sure that you're not missing an organic problem before you diagnose anxiety. So maybe thinking about things like an ECG, spirometry, urine ward test, depending on um, the age of your patient, it might be like a delirium manifestation. Examination in anxiety, general, you want to look at body habitus. This is any agitation or tremors, obs, looking for tachycardia or hypertension. Look at the thyroid for any signs of hyperthyroidism. Neuro exam, CVS, RESP, GRT exam, just looking for any of the things that might be causing stimulation or carcinoid or Cushing's or Theo or hypothyroid. Um, and looking for any signs of alcohol or recreational drug use. Um, and then again, examination in depression. Uh, looking at Jen Obbs, doing a mental state exam. So you want to do a mental state exam and anxiety there as well. Um, you know, in terms of bedside tests, you want to look at doing, um, you know, your K10, your PCLC, um, and DAS21. Uh, in terms of, you know, organic diseases that can mimic generalized anxiety disorder or, you know, other psych disorders, um, you know, you can have panic attacks in there, phobic disorders, OCD, body dysmorphic disorder, acute stress disorder, PTSD, hyperventilation, adjustment disorder with anxious mood, somatization disorder, anxiety in children and benzo use. Um, you know, the diagnostic criteria for generalized anxiety disorder uh, is in the DSM-5 a persistent and unrealistic worry, persistent and unrealistic worry and worry about a number of different life circumstances for six months or longer and uh, the features of exam are basic features of history and exam are you know the patient is restless keyed up on edge easily fatigued irritable muscle muscle tension sleep disturbance uh, the differentials of generalized anxiety disorder you, have, you know are things like depression drugs and alcohol use Benzo use, hyperthyroidism, angina, iatrogenic or drug use, caffeine, schizophrenia, 
delirium or pre-senile dementia. The endocrine differentials of generalized anxiety disorder include carcinoids, so serotonin syndrome, hypothyroid, Cushing's and pheochromocytoma. So non-pharmacological management of GAD with generalized anxiety disorder based around relaxation therapies, lifestyle things, um, and other forms of medication. That's dumb. Medication use in generalized anxiety disorder are basically uh, sertraline, 25 to 200 daily, paroxetine, 10 milligrams daily, venlafaxine, 75 milligrams daily, and diazepam, 5 milligrams daily. The overall non-pharmacological management of anxiety um, based around CBT, you can use e-mental health programs. Um, you want to avoid stimulants, alcohol, caffeine, actively relaxing, um, be it through you know programs, walking, exercise or meditation, diet, lifestyle, exercise, and you want to wrap that all in a GP management plan. Uh, in terms of the benefits of the e-mental health programs, you know, they're self-paced and they're free. Uh, the risks of this, the e-mental health programs are that they might be ineffective um, or you need a level of insight to, um, to get into them and do them and get a good outcome from them. So that's basically it for anxiety. This episode of GP Cool Content is on deafness. Um... So in terms of the feature, you know the features of history and deafness, you just want to ask about the onset, the progression, any noise exposure, drug history, any swimming or diving history or air travel history, recent head injury, recent infections, recent medications, uh, any family history of deafness, whether there's any ear pain or any associated features like um, oral discharge, tinnitus, vertigo, nausea, vomiting. The red flags in deafness include an asymmetric sensory neural hearing loss, cranial nerve defects, an ear canal mass, middle ear mass, deep ear pain, discharging ear and unsafe ear. Examinations in deafness include general exam, OBS, an ENT exam, so visualising the ear canal and the tympanic, tympanic membrane, the Rene Weber test, you can do whisper test, hair rubbing, and a full cranial nerve exam would be good. Um, you could even do all your exams that you do for vertigo and dizziness and do a HINTS exam. Investigations in deafness include audiometry, so formal audiometry, tympanic membrane compliance, uh, and an audiogram, which is the same thing, isn't it? Um, Depending on what you find, you could do an MRI or head CT as well to look for any space-occupying lesions or acoustic neuroma. Uh, deafness in kids, the features of history in deafness in kids, how does it normally present? So it can present as an absence of babbling by 12 months, uh, a speech abnormality or speech delay, uh, and no response or an abnormal response to normal conversation or the television. Uh, presenters of behavioural problems either at home or at school, uh, an inability to detect sound direction, and can present as learning problems at school. Uh, in terms of the examination and investigation of kids, 
you know, you can exam by the whisper test or in small kids, rattle the car keys. Uh, you can do a pneumatic otoscopy, pure tone audiometry, though that's unreliable at ages less than four. And you can do an auditory brain stem response in um, neonates or infants or toddlers under four. Um, the exam of Rene Weber, it's important to remember how to do that. And what's normal is AC greater than BC. So normal is air conduction greater than bone conduction. Uh, way to remember that is ACBC. Um, it's important to remember the two types of deafness, which are conductive and sensory neural. Although sensory neural can be broken down into sensory and then neural as two separate parts. The general causes of conductive hearing loss are wax in the external meatus, uh, osteomata, otitis externa, eustachian tube dysfunction, barotrauma, perforated tympanic membrane, otosclerosis, and cholesteatoma. Uh, in terms of you know the sensory neural side, then the sensory side. So the sensory side refers to being in the cochlea. Uh, and then the neural component of sensory neural refers to being in the acoustic nerve. Um, in terms of sensory, causes of sensory hearing loss include trauma, viral infection, syphilis, TB, presbyacusis or old age hearing, uh, ototoxic drugs affect the cochlea, Meniere syndrome, congenital cochlear deafness or cochlear otosclerosis and on the acoustic nerve side so neural component of sensory neural deafness causes include acoustic neuroma, herpes zoster, central causes um, and cerebropontine angle tumours. The main causes of deafness in kids are sensory neural deafness from maternal intrauterine infection and then most commonly with your torch organisms. Sensory neural defects from drug ingestion in pregnancy, birth trauma, hemolytic disease of the newborn, Down syndrome and Wardenberg syndrome. Uh, other causes include, include purulent otitis media, secretory otitis media, mumps, meningitis. Causes of deafness in the elderly include presbyacusis as the main one. Uh, I would add to that ototoxic drugs like NSAIDs, <coughs> gentamicin, ACE inhibitors, I think, uh, when given over a long period of time. Uh, the features of hearing of deafness in the elderly are basically revolve around the presence of tinnitus, the loss of your high-frequency sound, Registration, intolerance to loud sounds, and it's hard to pick up your high-frequency consonants. Um, and with deafness in the elderly, it has a lot of complications. So, you know, some of the complications are anxiety, depression, paranoid delusions, agitations, and confusion. Um, so if you get a patient with sudden deafness, it's worth thinking about the causes of those as well. Uh, so the causes of sudden deafness in any age group include... Trauma, um, so head injury, um, if you've been diving, flying, or had an acoustic blast, so that'd be like traumatic causes. Uh, Post-operative deafness after a stabidectomy, 
viral infections with measles, mumps and herpes, ototoxic drugs, so immunoglycosides or NSAIDs, your cerebellopontine angle tumours, uh, and then chronic diseases like vascular disease, diabetes, uh, things like polycythemia, many airs can also cause sudden onset deafness, as can cochlear otosclerosis. Um, and then causes of sudden onset sensory neural hearing loss include presence of a perilymphatic fistula or an acoustic neuroma causing compression on your internal auditory artery by the tumours. Uh, so in terms of the diseases, I'm going to talk about otosclerosis, cholesteatoma, noise-induced hearing loss, uh, a little bit more on tinnitus, and use of hearing aids. The pathology of otosclerosis is that it's a disease of bone in the, in the inner ear and it's the most common cause of conductive hearing loss in adults. Uh, and what you get is the middle ear replaced by a vascular, spongy bone. The features of history are that it's a progressive disease developing in the 20s or 30s. There's a family history of it, so it's usually autosomal dominant. Uh, it can be bilateral or unilateral. Um, usually occurs in females. It may progress rapidly in pregnancy. Uh, usually conductive and it starts in the lower tones. The management of otosclerosis involves referral to an ENT for stapidectomy, which is approximately 90% effective, and adding on a hearing aid. of cholesteatoma is that it's a keratinizing squamous epithelium which arises from a perforation in the tympanic membrane. Uh, it's like a big sack of skin. It's dangerous as it expands and destroys adjacent structures, destroys the tympanic membrane, vesicular chain and the cochlea. In terms of noise-induced hearing loss and tinnitus, the features of noise-induced hearing loss are that it's you get an onset of tinnitus after a high noise exposure, uh, where speech seems muffled. Uh, you get a temporary loss initially, which recovers, but then can become permanent if you have continued exposure. <coughs> you get that high-frequency loss via a notch on the audiogram, uh, normally at 4 to 6 kilohertz. And it comes from sounds that exceed 85 dB. In terms of tinnitus, uh, tinnitus is that high-pitched, constant, usually non-pulsatile sound. It can either be objective or subjective, and can be pulsatile or non-pulsatile. Uh, there's various causes of tinnitus to exclude, uh, and they are basically uh, any wax um, marijuana or recreational drug use vascular disease depression and aneurysm um, 
problems with your jugular vein, so your venous hum, uh, acoustic neuroma, Menier syndrome, or infections. Investigations in tinnitus would include an audiological exam, tympanometry, uh, speech discrimination tests, and if you suspect a serious cause, like acoustic neuroma, then an MRI. Uh, in terms of management of tinnitus, you want to treat the underlying cause, so I guess finding the underlying cause and treating that, trying to minimise the symptoms and educate and reassure uh, the patient. Um, you can have you know use holistic management approaches, so using relaxation techniques, CBT, masking devices and hearing aids, uh, and you can use pharmacological measures, so clonazepam 0.5 milligrams noctay, Minerals like zinc and magnesium, beta histine or circ at 8 to 16 milligrams daily, carbamazepine, sodium valproate, antidepressants, and for severe cases, you can use a IV push of 5%, 5 mils of 1% lignocaine. With regards to hearing aids, they're most useful in conductive deafness. In sensory neural deafness, you get the um, problems of loss in your high tones, and that makes the hearing aids less effective. Uh, with cochlear implants, they would be used in severe hearing loss, unresponsive to hearing aids. It consists of 22 electrodes inserted into the cochlea and transmitting the sounds to the cochlea. Uh, that's most suitable for kids over two and adults with severe deafness. Um, in terms of advice you'd give to families of deaf patients, you'd want to advise them to face the light, speak directly, speak clearly and naturally, speak at a uniform pitch, speak within two metres, be tolerant and be relaxed. Uh, and in terms of red flags prior to referral, um, things like asymmetric sensory neural hearing loss, cranial nerve defects, ear canal masses or middle ear masses, any kind of deep ear pain or a discharging ear would all be uh, possible indications for uh, priority referral to an ENT.